0: Okay, Um, this morning is another RBT Sunday, which means we're going to do a short overview of one whole book of the Bible, uh, and then we'll read through it together at a more steady pace in the month to come. Last month, if you remember, we explored the book of Philippians, and this morning we're going to be looking at Joshua. So if you've got a Bible with you, please turn to Joshua and you can follow along in there. Also, there is a handout for this morning, um, which is available on the email that we sent out, so maybe you've already printed that. Or you can pull it up on screen or pull it up on your phone. Well, I wonder, have you ever felt like you were facing the impossible? That an impossible task lay before you and you didn't know how you were going to get through it? Sometimes it's just the general busyness of life that seems to get on top of us. Sometimes it's the challenge of how to walk in the way of godliness when it feels like doing things God's way is just too hard and too difficult. Sometimes it's those greater trials or even tragedies that we just don't know how we can endure. Whatever your own seemingly impossible obstacles are today, the book of Joshua is able to help and encourage us as we face them. Because on the borders of the land of Canaan, the people of Israel are almost certainly feeling like an impossible task lies before them. In fact, they'd been here before. Forty years earlier, God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them to the borders of this land that he had long ago promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And they'd sent in 12 spies to spy out the land But if you remember, 10 of the 12 spies returned overwhelmed by the might of the Canaanites. And they managed in turn to convince most of the rest of the people that if they were to enter the land, they would certainly be devoured. And in response to their unbelief, God sentenced that entire adult generation to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. No one but Caleb and Joshua would live to cross over into the promised land. So now, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, they've come full circle. They're back where they were before with a second chance to trust God to lead them safely into the land. Now, the book, I think, divides up into four main stages. And if you've got the handout, you can see them on there. I think they're going to come up on the screen. as our first one. In chapters 1 to 4, they enter the land... In chapters 5 to 12, they take the land. In chapters 13 to 21, they inherit the land. And then in 22 to 24, they're told how to keep the land. So let's look at briefly each of those in turn. First of all, entering the land, chapters 1 to 4. The very first line of the book begins with some sobering words. After the death of Moses... It's hard to overstate what a blow the death of Moses must have been to Israel. Just a page earlier in the closing verses of Deuteronomy, we read of how Moses was without equal. There had never been a prophet like him, one who knew the Lord face to face. If anything then, the prospect of what now lies before them with this second chance to enter into Canaan was even more frightening than the first time now that Moses was no longer with them. But God, of course, hasn't left them alone. In fact, they have nothing to fear because God himself is with them. And so continuing in verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The one and only assurance that they need, with all of the unknown challenges that lie ahead of them, is that the Lord himself is with them. And incidentally, that's the one and only reassurance that we need as well. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, actually applies the promise of Joshua 1, 5, directly to us when it says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. The promise of God's abiding presence, which runs right through the book of Joshua, is the very best medicine in all of the world for putting our fears to rest. But returning to Israel, they have God's promise, the promised land there before them. They have God's presence with them. And they also have a divinely appointed person to lead them, Joshua. And Joshua's portrait in these opening chapters is clearly intended to remind us of Moses. And you can see it in three details in particular. Firstly, in chapter one, like Moses, he calls on the people to keep and obey the law, the covenant that God has made with them a generation earlier at Sinai. This, in fact, is what it means to be strong and courageous. It's not about how they handle their sword and their shield as they go into the land. Now, to be strong and courageous means to delight in God's word and be faithful to trust and obey it, even in the face of great opposition. Secondly, in chapter 2, just like Moses before him, Joshua sends spies into the land to scout it out ahead of them. But things go way differently this time. The Canaanites are just as formidable and big and scary as before, but the report from the spies is this, Joshua 2, verse 24. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Even more amazingly, one of the Canaanites, a prostitute called Rahab, has realised the very same thing, and she is seeking refuge in the God of Israel as well. And thirdly, in chapters 3 and 4, just as Moses led the Israelites through the mighty Red Sea, now Joshua leads them through the River Jordan uh, as the water parts before them. Now, there's there's two things worth noting here. One is don't be fooled by the idyllic-looking stream crossings that you sometimes see in children's Bibles. At this time of year, the River Jordan would have been in full flood, over a mile wide, so... Picture a a fierce and raging torrent of water that they need to cross. And the second thing to notice as they cross is notice who's right up front when you read. Parting the surging floodwaters. It's not Joshua. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The symbol of God's presence with his people. Making clear that it's the Lord himself who holds back the waters from his people and leads them safely over into the land of promise, which leads into the second section of the book, chapters 5 to 12, the taking of the land. On arriving in Canaan, all of the men are circumcised as a a sign of their uh, new commitment to God, and then they celebrate their first Passover together in their new home. And on that same day, God stops providing them with manna from heaven to eat, and instead begins to give them the produce and the fruit of the land, which uh, must have been a welcome change, to say the least. But there's an elephant in the room, even as they celebrate. How will they overcome the mighty and wicked Canaanites? The answer is quickly given, as Joshua finds himself face to face with an angelic being carrying a drawn sword. And in one of those moments that I think is always stirring, no matter how, how many times you read it, Joshua asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? Which seems like a reasonable question. But the man answers, no, neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. The important question then is not, will God be on Joshua's side? The real question here, as the Bible Project guys put it, is whether Joshua is on God's side. The whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle. And throughout chapters 6 to 12, we find the stories of Israel's many different battles with the various groups of Canaanites that are in the land. First of all, in chapters 6 to 8, the camera zooms right in on two battles in particular. And then in 9 to 12, it will zoom right out and time will speed up so that many more battles over many more years are summarised much more quickly. But it's those first two battles, the ones with all the detail, that are really the most important in getting the message across. Together, they offer contrasting portraits of what will happen when, on the one hand, Israel fights in God's strength, versus, on the other hand, when they fight on their own. When they do as God says, he is unfailingly faithful to give them the victory but when they disobey God they dramatically fail so at Jericho in chapter 6 the odds are stacked high against Israel the Canaanites know they're there they've shut up the gates of the city humanly speaking there is no way that Israel are equipped to force their way in and win the battle but this is not their battle As God instructs them to march around the city, blowing their trumpets for six days in a row, it's not the marching or the trumpet blowing that's really the key to their victory. It's the fact that God is with them as they carry the Ark of the Covenant around the city walls. And on the seventh day, the priests blow their trumpets, the people let out a great shout, and the walls come crashing down, allowing them to overrun the city. God's people are victorious because the Lord himself is with them to give Jericho into their hands. But in chapters 7 to 8, we see what happens when God is not with them. The Canaanite city of Ai was far smaller than Jericho and should therefore have been far easier to conquer. But Israel's first assault on it ends in devastating defeat and the people's hearts, including Joshua's, are said to melt like water. Why has God abandoned them? God's response quickly comes His presence has left them because they have broken faith with Him. One man in particular, Achan, has stolen and hidden for himself some of the goods from Jericho that he knew were to be devoted to God Himself. Because of one man's disobedience, God's people cannot stand before their enemies. Only when they've humbled themselves and repented and have dealt with Achan's sin does the Lord give Ai easily into their hands. All of which teaches us that not only is sin serious, but also that nothing is more crucial to the well-being of God's people than the presence of the Lord himself with them. In the second half of chapters 5 to 12, as Israel moves onward in taking the land, uh, we're met by two more contrasting stories, this time providing two very different pictures of how God's enemies can respond when they see God's judgment approaching. In chapter 9, as we meet the Gibeonites, I love the Gibeonites in fact, uh, we see that there is mercy for the repentant. The Gibeonite encounter is in many ways a repeat of what happened with Rahab, but this time for a whole group of Canaanites who are turning to make peace with God. Like Rahab, they have heard what God is doing uh, and has done to Israel, and they want to escape his judgment and seek refuge in the Lord for themselves. Now, yes, they use some creative and morally dubious methods to get there, but the point of the encounter is not about whether they're justified in lying about their identity, the real point is that God is always ready to show mercy to anyone who turns to him and asks. Be they Israelites or Canaanites, Jews or Gentiles, prostitutes or religious leaders, or you or me. In fact, if even Canaanites, whose wickedness was notorious, rife with immorality and even child sacrifice... If even Canaanites can be accepted, there's no one the Lord will not forgive who turns to him to be saved. And yet, as the final two chapters in this section reveal, the Lord is just as willing to bring judgment on those who remain defiant. So in chapters 10 to 12, we read about a great number of other Canaanite kings and peoples who've also heard about the might and the power of the Lord and how he's fighting for Israel But their response to what they've heard is not to repent, but to lock arms together against him in defiance. Chapter 11, verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. And as a result, all of these other cities, who appear far greater and stronger than Israel, are soundly defeated in battle. It's just as God promised his people in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. When the Lord God is with them, there is nothing for God's people to fear. And so throughout chapters 10 to 12, we read of Joshua and Israel capturing numerous other Canaanite kings and cities, Precisely because, 10.42, the Lord God of Israel fights for Israel. Even when it means commanding the sun itself to stand still in the sky. And as we read these chapters this month, we should be reminded too that because we too have run to God for refuge, we too have absolutely nothing left to fear. Whether in life or in death, the Lord's presence and strength are sufficient to put to rest our greatest fears. The next section of the book, the third section from chapters 13 to 21, is likely going to be the one that we usually find hardest to read. Because in it we're told in great detail about the dividing up of the land amongst the people of Israel. As Dale Ralph Davis, I think, humorously captures it, he says, probably even the most stout-hearted reader of Joshua begins to crumble and nod." as he enters chapters 13 to 21. Watching war movies always tends to be more exciting than participating in land surveys. Somehow chasing a Canaanite out of the hill country is far more stimulating than plodding over his former land, counting villages and tracing borders. Our problem, though, is that we don't see the distribution of the land to the different tribes as an Israelite would have seen it. To us, it's just like drawing lines on an ancient map. But to an Israelite, it's describing his or her inheritance from God. An inheritance that was first promised to Abraham long ago, back in Genesis 12, verse 7, when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This is that promised inheritance, the the one that they have waited so long to receive, finally it's arrived in all of its three-dimensional glory. For them, every town name and borderline pulsates with excitement and promise. But that means excitement and promise for us too, because their very real and tangible inheritance in Canaan is a foreshadowing of our own far greater inheritance to come when one day we'll inherit not a slither of land or a formless, bodiless existence in the sky, but new resurrection bodies and a new heavens and a new earth that will be our new, perfect, tangible, three-dimensional forever home. This section as well, look out for it, also speaks to the challenge that we all face to go on believing God's promises year after year after year. Be sure to look out for the inspirational testimony of Caleb in chapter 14, who, now 85 years old, is still trusting boldly in the mighty promises of God. Most importantly of all, I think, this third section is a detailed witness to the promise-keeping faithfulness of God. It ends with these amazing words, 21 verse 45 that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Which really would seem like a great place to end the book. But all is not quite settled yet. Because the fourth and final section turns the focus onto what they must do to keep the land that God has given them. The Lord has been unfavoringly. Uh, and unwaveringly faithful to Israel. But the concern of the final three chapters is can Israel be faithful to the Lord? Joshua lays out for them what faithfulness involves. Chapter 22, verse 5 To love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And equally, he goes on to tell them not to serve and bow down to the gods of other nations. And then Joshua sets before them a choice. To join him in serving the Lord, in which case they'll go on enjoying life and blessing in the land. Or to go worship other useless gods, in which case they'll experience the same judgment that befell the Canaanites. The people, of course... Uh, make their firm resolve, their decision to be faithful to God, but there are already some troubling clouds on the horizon. First of all, Joshua suspects that their faithfulness is not going to last. Secondly, we read in chapter 24, verse 31, that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel which implies that maybe just one generation later the people will forget, which sadly they do, as we see in the next book of the Bible. The third and final ominous black cloud as the book ends is that the book ends with a bunch of burials, which is actually an ongoing problem. I don't know if you've noticed, but Old Testament books keep ending with significant deaths. Joshua, uh, sorry, Joseph dies at the end of Genesis, Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, and now Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua. And the reason is this, that even for God's most faithful servants, sin and death have still not been dealt with and removed. And so the book ends leaving us wanting something more. Wanting, in particular, to find a new and greater Joshua a Joshua who can defeat every single enemy of God's people, including the most powerful and frightening enemy of all, death itself. It leaves us wanting a greater Joshua who can be wholeheartedly faithful to God in every way, not just as an example to us, but actually in our place, as our substitute to cover over our repeated unfaithfulness. And finally, it leaves us wanting a greater Joshua who, by his resurrection from the dead, can grant us not just a piece of land, but as it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's no coincidence, of course, that this greater Joshua is also called Joshua, or the Greek version of that name, Jesus. A name which literally means the Lord saves. Of course the best news of all this morning and every time we pick up the book of Joshua to read it. Is that this greater Joshua, this Jesus has already come. Ultimately he's the one that the book of Joshua is really all about. He's the one whose abiding presence with us can banish all our fears. And he's the one who Whatever obstacles lie before us has promised to lead us safely home. Let's pray.